Welcome back to Discovering the Jewish Roots. I'm Dr. Rick Wadge, and we have a studio audience with us. I'm so glad that you joined us. You know, we started last week looking at some crazy cool topics. Well, it doesn't end there. We have a lot more we're going to go through, and we want to start off this week with looking at a topic that I call Eden and Faith. This is going to be fun, but we're going to go back to the early chapters of Genesis, Bereshit in Hebrew, which means beginnings. And we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 21. These classic early chapters have given you a moment to turn in your Bibles. I want you to see this up close and personal. Uh, they have forged the early concepts in every religion around the world. They truly have. And so you're going to see some of that as well as we're looking now. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 21. This is what it says. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us. There's that plurality term again. Become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Whatever that fruit was they ate was the most expensive fruit man has ever bought since. Well, the term here for Eden, I wanna, I, I'm one of those guys that I don't like uh, I was probably born to be one of those criminologists who can walk into a crime scene kind of thing. So when I look at the Bible, I don't just skip over words. I ask the question, why is this word here? What did the word originally mean to the first hearers, to the first readers? And how can that then be applied to my understanding of this passage? So the term for Eden, which we would normally just probably walk past, it's a place, think about what this place is about. It's a place where the human race has been cast out of, first parents. Uh, they've been placed on the other side of, I want you to really get an image of what's going on here. Uh, they can no longer enter into, we still haven't been able to. It's a Hebrew word. And, and by the way, just side note, almost every Hebrew word is built on three letters. Almost every Hebrew term in its root form is based on three letters. Very, very few exceptions to that. So this place called Eden, I want you to see what it looks like in the original way it was written. You know, we in our Bibles today, if you were to pull out a Hebrew scroll, the Hebrew is in what's called now block letters. But it wasn't originally in block letters. Even in the in the uh, desert of Sinai, I've seen pictures, loads of pictures on this. Is that as the Hebrews came through and they were evacuating uh, Egypt on the great Exodus uh, trip, uh, the stones actually throughout that area have Paleo Hebrew letters written on those that they found. And the cool thing about that is, is that, remember when I said, I think it was last week, we talked about that Hebrew is phonetic, has a sound, it is uh, numeric, that each letter is also a number, but it's also pictorial. 
that every letter is a picture. And I love this topic because to me, it really makes our Bibles come even more alive. So we want to look at the three letter designation for the term Eden. Check it out. Okay. So it is three letters. It is the ayin, which is the term for I in Hebrew. It is the dalit, which in Hebrew would be for door. And it is the noon, which would be for fish or movement. If you're looking down, you would see this as being life as you look down and see fish swimming around. So literally, the idea of Eden is seeing the door to life. Three letters, three pictures, write them all together, and that's the description to the ancient mind of what they've been cast out of. They were there, they were walking side by side with God, walking with Him in the coolness of the day, in some form, it seems like they either could perceive God in a closer fashion. They're cast out of that area now where they could see the door to life. Now they can't. This has huge ramifications for us when we think about the term faith. Seeing the door to life. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. Now, I want you to think about what's been going on, right? God walks with him in the cool of the day. As Christians, we would see, we talked about the door of life. I'm going to go back one slide. We're thinking about seeing the door to life. In the New Testament, we have a lot of language about door to life, but it's always with the Messiah. The Messiah is this door to life. He's the one that fulfills the prophecies of this very section of Scripture about being the one that will crush the serpent's head, even though he's had his heel uh, damaged in some form. So he's he's the victor over the, over the serpent. Uh, very interesting when this goes into mythology, because then you have Achilles being the one who's only vanquished by his heel, right? Very interesting as well. So we have the first parents being a, a, a led out of the garden and uh, led out of the area where they could see life very clearly. Genesis 2, verse 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, what's going to happen? You're going to die. Okay, so inside is life, outside is death. The doorway is going to be blocked until Messiah, in, in Hebrew, this would be Mashiach, until Mashiach would become the doorway of life once again. I mean, if you look at the end of the story in our Christian Bibles, you find that we're brought back into the setting of the garden. And, and it's, the, it's the leaves of the trees that bring healing to the nations. So it starts off with a garden, it ends up with a garden. Very, very picturesque of what God is doing, but he's telling the complete story of this very first event that takes place. Turn, if you would, to the Gospel of John. His name is Yohanan. I like to give you the real, the real names so that we get these. There's no John. Jonathan! There's no Jonathan! Boy, George! There's no George either! <laughs> Yohanan. 
John chapter 10, verse 7. Let me know when you're there. I hope you at home are having fun because when I look at scripture, I have a blast. To me, it's the greatest adventure in in our lives. I just love following after God and looking at his word. It's amazing. So turn if you would in your Bibles to John chapter 10, starting verse 7. Jesus is speaking. Is that really his name, by the way? Did he ever hear in his entire life somebody say, Hey, Jesus, yo, Jesus. Yo, what's happening? Yo, you and the boys, come over for some food. Never, ever heard the term Jesus because the J wasn't even a letter until centuries later. So what was the, the name that he heard his mother call him? Yeshi. Yeah, he's a little Yeshi. So what about when he's, when he's grown up? What's his name? Yeshua. Who's he named after? He's named after the great person who brought the children of Israel into the promised land. We know him as Joshua. So if we were really to to translate or transliterate the original name into the name in English of Jesus, it would be Joshua. He's Rabbi Joshua. But even more than that, it's not Joshua. That would be Yehoshua. He's called Yeshua. Not Yehoshua, Yeshua. My name is Rick, not Richard. So he would have been Rabbi Josh. So if we were if we were to really call him his English name, it'd be Rabbi Josh. Oh, I know Josh. I talked to Josh this morning. Isn't that interesting? And the first time I really got that about the Hebrew language, the Aramaic language, I thought, okay, I'm still going to call you Jesus, but Rabbi Josh is kind of cool too. <laughs> okay, John chapter 10, starting in verse 7. So Jesus, or Josh, or Yeshua, again said to them, Truly, truly, what is that in Hebrew? Amen, 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 amen. I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. So we see this over and over again. Let me give you another example of something that's going to tie us in now in a different way than you've probably thought of before to the term Eden in Paleo-Hebrew, early picture Hebrew. Right? And you're going to find this in the second letter of Rabbi Shaul or Rav Shaul or the Apostle Paul. They would have known him as Rav Shaul. The Apostle Paul to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. How many of you know that you never base doctrine out of Corinthians? The Corinth church was the most screwed up church in all of Asia Minor. So it's always corrective things. It's not, it's not the main principles laid out. It's how to get them from doing the wrong thing to bring them back on the path. So it's not a book about doctrine at all. Okay, and this is this is what we see. This is classic, you know this. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse seven. If you're at home right now, take a look in your Bible. Second Corinthians five, seven says, for we walk by faith, and join with me, not by, not by sight. Well, I find that interesting when I think about the Paleo Hebrew of the term Eden or Gan Eden, I'll say it correctly. That's the Garden of Eden. Gan Eden is the correct way to say it. 
Turn, if you would, to Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 1. You probably know this by heart. The Bible is amazing. Hebrews chapter 11, the great faith chapter. The Hebrews of the faith. It says this. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Why is that? Because we can no longer see the door to life. Now think about that. We have to go by faith because we can't see the door to life anymore. Because we've been cast out of Eden. Eden and seeing the door to life. So we can't see anymore. Now we've got to go with another sense altogether. And it's a sense that God pours into us. And it's called faith. And faith has everything to do with not being able to see life. But believe God for it. Why? Because we were cast out of the door to life. Gan Eden or the Garden of Eden. To me, that just blows my mind. I love it. Now, when we think about life, <clears throat> everybody has a lot of different views of what life is. And so I want to change your perspective on how viewing things can be viewed in many different ways. How we view the Bible today and the concepts of the Bible today are very, in many ways, they're actually backwards from the original intent. And how can I be that bold about this? Well, because all you have to do is study a little bit of Hebrew and you'll find this. This is one of my favorite topics. It's the past and the future. Now this is cool, but it's gonna to totally blow your mind in how we look at the way we see things and how David, Moses, Noah, these early prophets saw things and experienced life. Okay, so the Hebrew word for tomorrow is mahar. It comes from the root term ahar, and it means to be behind. You might want to make a note of this. This is going to blow your mind. Okay? Tomorrow means to be behind. Oh, yeah. The Bible's awesome. Okay. Now I want to give you the term for yesterday. Because the Hebrew term in our Bibles, in your own Bible, is temol. And it comes from the root mul, meaning in front. So yesterday means in front. Tomorrow means behind. So in Hebrew thinking... In our, in our Bible's culture, in the way it was originally written and intended to be understood, they perceived the past or yesterday as being in front of them, while the future or tomorrow as being behind. And this is going to make a whole lot of sense to you, I promise. 
So it's not that they saw themselves walking on the road of time backwards. In fact, they didn't see time the way we see time at all. We see time as being very linear because we've developed a Greek or Roman mindset, Latin, Greek mindset. Things move forward, they're progressive, they move. That is not the time experience and paradigm of the Bible. We look at the Bible with Western eyes and we've got to stop that if we want to understand the true meaning and message of the Bible because they saw it as being cyclical. That comes back around, it comes back around. Am I talking about reincarnation? Absolutely not. It's appointed for man wants to die and then the judgment. No, but what they did see is that time is very different than the way we perceive it because they perceived their history and the past as events that can be seen in front of them. They can see the events because they can remember the events that took place. So that's ever before them, while the future cannot be seen, therefore it's viewed as being behind them. I can't see the future. Well, my eyes see forward. Therefore, the future must be that way. But what's in front of me is what I've experienced. It's our history. It's my history. It's our history together. That's what I see. So in the, in the biblical mindset, uh, the idea of the, of the future is not something that's dwelt upon. It's, it's what God has done in the past and that's ever before me. Now, how does that affect us? Well, that's what builds faith. Think about your own experience. It's what God has already done that you can see. He's already done those things. He's already been faithful to me. He's already kept his promises to me. He's kept me safe. He's, he's even through the trials and the tribulations, God has been there. He's comforted me. He's done all these things for me. I can see that before me. The future, I have no idea, but based on the past, I know he'll be with me. Huge. So what's ever before me is not the dread of the future. What a message for today. What's ever before me is the promises and the presence of God in my past. And that is the Hebrew mindset. Okay, ready for another one? Sure. Now for something completely different. We're going to look at the name of God. Now, the first time we see the name of God is in the first chapter of Genesis. It's the Hebrew term Elohim. We discussed it. A little bit that it's a singular term in plurality all the words used around it are singular pointing back to this term that's plural that makes no sense in language you don't have descriptive words in singular form describing something in plurality it doesn't make sense but it does in Hebrew when you're talking about God so we describe God in singular terms even though he's shown to us as being the creator who's in plurality. Totally cool. God is awesome. The first name is Elohim, but it's plural for a term El. And El is used, E-L, we would write it, transliterate it in English. El is used throughout the early ancient world. All of Mesopotamia in one form or another, El, Al, uh, even, even we find the Mohammedans, using the term 
Allah, but that comes from the early form of this two-letter designation from El. It's formed from two Hebrew words, and without knowing Hebrew, you'll still get this. Check it out. So this is the term. Remember, Hebrew is written from right to left. So it's Aleph, Lamed, El, and then in the early, early language, it's written out this way as the Aleph was originally written as an ox. It's this strong animal that can do what a human being can't. We rely on this strong animal. He can do things we could never do. And then the other term is the term used for a shepherd's staff. So to the ancient mind in the Bible, L is the strong shepherd written by two letters. He's the strong shepherd. He's the one that can lead me down the path that is correct, and he's got the strength to make sure I can stay on it. Strong Shepherd, L. Okay. Now I want to show you something completely different from that. So we're getting a taste of all these little things that are in our Bible that make our Bibles incredible. And they go all the way from Bereshit, Genesis, all the way through the book of Revelation. I want to look at a term that we all know as Christians called redemption, right? But this is going to really make redemption come alive for you. Okay, so this is really cool. It's the term in Hebrew. Gaal. And it means to redeem. It's a compound word. It's a combination of the name of God, El. We saw that. And it's an added letter. It's the Gimel. Well, the Gimel is a word we would translate that Gimel now into English as Gimel camel. It's a term that the ancients used for camel. Gimel. Gimel is the letter. Gimel. And it's the picture of a camel. So, <laughs> what do camels do in the ancient world? They lift things up. You load their backs while they're kneeling. They rise up, they carry all your stuff, they're lifted up. So redemption is when L is lifted up. See how Hebrew works? So you have the strong shepherd who's lifted up. When the strong shepherd is lifted up, that's what we call redemption. So when God is lifted up, let me say it another way, someone is redeemed. I'll give you some examples of that. Exodus, or the real name for Exodus is Shemot. We inherited Greek names for what's the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. The second book, the second part of the scroll in the Torah scroll is Shemot. Shemot does not mean they're leaving someplace. We've inherited the Greek term from the Septuagint, which you brought up earlier, when you said, it's written in Greek. That was Alexandria. Uh, it was written in Alexandria. Uh, Alexander the Great paid money to have 70 rabbis, the story goes, go off into 70 different caves, write out 70 scrolls, and they all came miraculously to be exactly the same. And that is what we call the Septuagint. And that means 70, 70. So it is the Hebrew scriptures translated into Greek. Well, 
The cool thing about this is, is that when you look at the term Shmot instead of Exodus, you find out this is not about them leaving Egypt. Shmot means names. This is about the people. It's about the people that left. It's not about the event of leaving. Exodus is about the people. God cares about people. And that comes out even in the name of the book. So it's not Exodus, it's Shmot. Names. God cares about your name. He cares about who you are. Not about all the events as much. It's who you are. He cares about you. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. This is the first time we see this used, or one of the first times. It says, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, yod heh vav four-letter designation for God. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will go all. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Now, so, so the word picture is when God is lifted up, people are redeemed. They're bought back. They're set free. Someone's paid a price. God says, I'm going to redeem you with outstretched arms. I'm going to do that for you. I, I just love the imagery there, right? So cool. Now let's go to the Gospel of Yohanan. Let's go to the Gospel of John, chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Now, Yeshua, or Josh, we know him as Jesus, is speaking. And he says this in John chapter 3, starting at verse 14. He says, as Moshe, or Moses, was lifted up. See the word picture there? See what's going on? The same thing we just looked at of being redeemed, being lifted up. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I'll give you one more, then I'll bring it to a close. John chapter 12, starting in verse 32. You can just write that one down. And I, Jesus is talking, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What's the point? When the Messiah is lifted up, people are redeemed. When God is lifted up, people are redeemed. When God is made high, bigger, when the focus is on Him, the serpent in the wilderness, it wasn't about the serpent. It was that they got their eyes off the problems around them and they focused on their hope in what God was doing in front of them. God promised He would do this. I'm going to focus on what God promises and believe He's going to do it. And it happened. It wasn't their faith that made it happen. It wasn't the bronze serpent on the pole that made it happen. It was God who made it happen, and He promised the people. They co-labored with Him by believing God would do it. God did it. He did it. So here we have Yeshua, Jesus, saying the very same thing. He's saying, look, when I'm lifted up and the focus is not on you and earthly things, but on me, you're going to be bought back. God will pay the price. He will cover you with His preciousness and take away all the things that have, that have brought you down, the things that have made you feel uh, disrespecting of yourself and this world. So the idea of redemption is very much about God being lifted up. And that is found in the very first time it's ever used in the Bible, Gaal. God 
lifted high, just like you would pack things on a camel and that camel would lift them up. That's what God does for us. We lift him up high. It's amazing. You will also see that in the letters of the Ten Commandments. And I will leave you with this thought before we come to next week and, uh, and make sure that you join us because you're not going to believe what we're going to be looking at next week. But check this out. Did you realize that the Ten Commandments are laid out in the order of the Hebrew alphabet? And there's a reason for that. Every one of them lines up with the meaning of the original letter and designation of the picture so that, I guess, for little kids to be able to remember. And you're going to love it, and you'll never forget the Ten Commandments as well. Thanks for joining us this week on Discovering the Jewish Roots. We will see you next time. Shalom, shalom.